Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 2. And we're going to be in uh, verses 1 through 12, Psalm chapter 2. I'm calling this Resurrection Sunday sermon, The Risen King. Psalm chapter 2, uh, let's pray. Our Father and most holy God, we come now to look at your word on this Resurrection Sunday. We are in a most unique situation and we pray for repentance and revival and in that order. We are a desperate people facing multiple issues and we know that our only hope is you and your son, our risen King. Help us to have ears to hear. Please open our hearts as we open your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, most people, it seems, to me anyway, see the history of the world as looking something like this. God created the world good. Satan came along and of course he messed it up. And yes, Jesus came in the middle of history, but for the most part, the world is basically Satan's playground and we can only stand on the outside of the fence while he, Satan, gets to roam around the park and have fun in the jungle gym and the slide and everything else. Not only that, since Satan is in charge of the world, it is believed, uh, in charge of the world right now, they would postulate, we're pretty much just trying to eke our way through life and hopefully Jesus will hurry up and come back to mop it all up very soon. In fact, what's taking him so long anyway? Doesn't God care about what happens here on earth? These are the questions we end up with, with this particular outlook. This illustration, I believe, is the prevailing belief, and it's something that we ought to lament. Because many church-going people have a naturalistic evolutionary view of the world, most assume that everything is just sort of ho-humming along, and granted, in the middle of history, a, a dead guy came back to life. But since then, everything is just meh. Everything's just existing and going on as usual. So Easter comes and goes each and every year, and we tend to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ with as much fervor as we do, for example, September 11th each year. Ah, yes, that's something that happened, didn't it? And then we move on, and worse yet, we move on unchanged. I wanna take a different approach with you this morning and talk about the risen king, emphasis on king. That's what I'm calling this message. Jesus is alive, and now everything changes. What we preach is a historical reality with inexorable, unending ramifications. The resurrection of Christ isn't simply a historical event. It's a history-altering event. So let's go ahead and read our passage from Psalm chapter 2, and we will go from there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Now, perhaps you've read this passage before. Perhaps you are somewhat familiar with what's happening here. King David is the author, and while writing, he boasts that his kingdom is upheld by the power of God. And he clarifies that in spite of his enemies, his rule would be extended to the ends of the earth. David wants, wants it to be widely known that God has established him as king over Israel. And any attempt to thwart God's plan would be futile and utterly ineffectual. But we must fast forward through history because David, of course, is a type of Christ, meaning that, that since Jesus of Nazareth is David's son and David's Lord, that's Psalm 110.1, this changes the scope of the passage when we consider redemptive history. In fact, the New Testament quotes from this Psalm, Psalm chapter two, several times, demonstrating the truthfulness of what it intends to um, address. Now, what some of us forget from time to time is that our Bible has a built-in study Bible already. In other words, the, the New Testament is basically a commentary on the Old Testament in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. For the apostles, they basically said, okay, well, Jesus is here, and because he's here, this is what all that Old Testament stuff really meant. The New Testament is pretty much an apostolic study Bible. If you want to know what the Old Testament means, you need to do some basic cross-referencing. What are they saying about the Old Testament and the New Testament? So, what is it in the New Testament about Psalm chapter 2 that makes me say that this is ultimately about, about Jesus? What is this Psalm ultimately about? Beyond David's immediate context, what is it, what is it pointing to? The answer, I think, is rather simple. Psalm chapter 2 is about Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and his ascension to the throne in heaven. All right, his death, resurrection, and his ascension. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And let me show you why this is the case. Look at verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The question we need to answer is, where does the New Testament talk about this? And the answer, of course, is Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches up a storm, and he cites these verses in Psalm 2, the first three verses here, as evidence that the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman governors have set themselves against God. They plotted against Jesus and crucified him, and of course all of that was according to God's um, foreknowledge, his predestination plan. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4. 
So they hated Jesus and they murdered him. And yet this was the agreement for all time between the three persons of the Trinitarian Godhead. So the first few verses here in Psalm chapter two apply to the crucifixion. That's exactly what the Apostle Peter tells us in Acts chapter four. So then what does God do in response to this conspiratorial rebellion? Look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. When Jesus was murdered, God laughed at the wicked as other Psalms tell us that he does. God holds them in derision, which simply means that God mocks them in his, in his laughter. His laughter is actually a mockery of them. What the religious leaders didn't understand at all is that they were in fact accomplishing God's will, God's plan. It was the will of God to crush Jesus, to crush the, the Son of God for our sins and our trans uh, transgressions, which is what we see in the book of Isaiah. And in doing so, this is the great remarkable turnaround, the actions by those leaders ultimately backfired. They essentially sawed off the branch that they were sitting on. God laughs at those who try to plot against him because it is ultimately futile. It is ultimately ineffectual. It ultimately is, is pointless for them because it's not going to actually work. They believed, these leaders believed themselves to be putting an end to this Jesus character. But in reality, they were putting an end to their own pretend kingdoms, their will, their ways, their law, their rebellion. See, Satan's kingdom was toppled when Christ was crucified. And of course, the irony is palpable. The irony is dripping off the pages of scripture. So what, is, what does God do next? Verses five and six. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, they plotted against God by trying to destroy Jesus. God laughs, but not only does he laugh, he speaks to them in his wrath, the text says, and he terrifies them in his fury all the while saying that he has established his king on Zion, God's holy hill. Now, for biblical interpreters, we have to ask the question, well, when did God set his king on, on Zion? When, when did that take place? Well, futurists, uh, like premillennial dispensationalists, for example, they will tell us, well, this is something that's yet to happen. Um, it can only happen in the future, in, 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 in the millennial reign. But what does the New Testament tell us, if anything, about God's establishment of Christ on Zion? Let's keep going. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. See, there are several places in the New Testament that quote this verse. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Acts chapter 13 verse 33, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, and of course Hebrews chapter 5 verse 5. So um, if you flip to Romans uh, chapter 1, I can just show you real quick what the Apostle Paul is, is actually talking about with this passage. 
and you can leave your pinky in Psalm chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 4, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. Now we have David again, according to the flesh. He was David's son, his great, 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 great grandson. And he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when was Jesus Christ, um, when was he declared to be the son of God? When he was begotten, like Psalm 2 says, that's the question we have. Well, the answer, according to Paul in Romans 1, is his resurrection from the dead. For good measure, let me read to you Acts chapter 13, verse 33. This, this is speaking of Jesus, has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So why, why bring any of this up? Why, why, is, why is it important to talk about Psalm 2 in its appropriate New Testament context? Well, Psalm 2 is about the death and resurrection of Christ. The New Testament simply tells us and shouts to us that that is what it's all about. When Jesus was murdered and buried and raised and ascended, Jesus Christ was being established as king. There is simply no way around this claim. Um, and many people gloss over this, believing that the events surrounding Good Friday and and resurrection morning were just basically mere anomalies in an otherwise random universe full of pointless circumstances and of course unfortunate consequences but we declare based on the scriptures the holy bible that we serve the living god and history is deeply personal for him look at verses 8 and 9 ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, the first thing Christ did when he ascended back to the Father, to heaven, to the throne, when he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven after his resurrection and ascension, he looked to the Father and he asks, the Father for the nations as his heritage. See, Jesus looked over to the Father and he said, mine, please, these are my nations now, please, because, because Jesus was enthroned and he was established as king, the ends of the earth now become his possession. See, that's our message, Christ the inheritor. That's our resurrection message, the risen king. He is Christ the inheritor. Jesus bought the world with his blood. The risen king now owns the place. It belongs to King Jesus. The bloody cross and the empty tomb were both edicts that were issued from the capital city of heaven, declaring and shouting out loud that a new king has been enthroned now and that the entire world now belongs to him. See, the world now has new owners, which means this dumpy dive of a place is currently being renovated by the kingdom of God. Remember when uh, Satan tempted Jesus by offering him the kingdoms of the world, if only he would fall down and worship Satan. Jesus didn't give in to the devil's request, the, the devil's temptation. 
for many reasons, not least because he did not have the authority to grant Jesus the nations. Jesus was going after the nations, this much is true, but he was going to the cross in order to get them. There, there was no room for selling out in Jesus's mission. There was no time for shortcuts. The cross was the only way. So what does Jesus do as king? Well, he breaks the nations with a rod of iron and he dashes them into pieces like the potter's vessel. The book of Revelation on three different occasions cites this verse in Psalm 2 as evidence that Messiah the Prince is currently ruling the nations with a scepter in his hand. COVID-19 and its accompanying hysteria included. But the text is not done. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kings, rulers, and all people, and all nations everywhere are warned to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, kiss the Son, the enthroned King. Otherwise, if you do not, he will be angry, and those wicked tyrants will perish under the full weight of God's holy wrath. And right here in Psalm chapter 2, we have Christ's death, we have Christ's resurrection, we have Christ's ascension, and we have Christ's current kingdom rule. But let me help you understand something important. The empty tomb was the royal edict issued to the world, a royal edict, a royal declaration, proclaiming to all of creation that the terms of surrender to this new peace treaty are now available. That is the risen king. See, here's the deal. Christianity, ultimately, we can say, is a religion of worldwide conquest. We are after unconditional surrender. There is only one set of terms and conditions, and it isn't in, it's not found in man's autonomous ways. The terms and conditions are set. They are fixed, and they are set by the living God. The tomb is empty. Come now, worship this king. That's our gospel message. After all, our message, our announcement, that's what the gospel means. It's an announcement. It is simple. There is a new king who has been crowned in the capital city. So come along and join in the celebration. That's our gospel message. Heaven is the capital city. Jesus is reigning the, over the earth from there. All of the nations are, of the earth are now outposts, or better yet, colonies of this kingdom. See, you have to understand something. At the, at the end of the book of Matthew, um, after Christ was raised from the dead, but before he was enthroned, Jesus told his disciples to go and get the nations. That's what he told them. Why go and get them? Well, because the nations belong to Christ legally. And because he has all authority in heaven and on the earth, that's why. So we are told to go and conquer the nations because the nations all belong to Christ. He, and he's already conquered them. 
See, the church conquers the world because the conquering has already happened. There is no botched rescue mission because the rescuing has already ultimately occurred in Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus doesn't come to mop it up. We're the ones mopping it up now. The victory is ours. The world is now owned by a new king. The empty tomb was the royal edict issued to the world proclaiming to all of creation that the terms of surrender to this peace treaty are now readily available in Christ. See, there's a lot happening underneath a text like this. The decisive blow to the kingdom of evil was the cross and empty tomb. It was here that Christ disposed of the rulers, the despots, and the principalities, making a mockery, and scripture, scripture even says in Colossians, making a spectacle of them. So what comes next after this decisive blow? Well, we go and we occupy the land. We do business, we occupy. We all get to participate in this victory by declaring to the world who are all Satan's captives that the king has won and that they must now come to him. That's how this whole gospel kingdom thing works. That's the preaching of our message. That's the gospel message of the kingdom of God. And yet the church in America has remained largely impotent to this message. We've relegated the resurrection and the enthronement of Christ to a mere holiday of remembrance, failing to see that we all have a role to play in this grand scheme of God's kingdom in Christ. Um, I read an illustration once that I thought was really apt to describe this, this whole paradigm. Imagine for a moment a, a general of an army and he and his lieutenants and commanders have been strategizing for quite a while and they are convinced that not only will they win but they say they see the big picture and it's rather obvious the enemy has already been defeated they just need to finish out these last few missions the war is over they know it everyone knows it but there's still a few more things to take care of now imagine that you are a soldier and you've been holed up with your buddies hunkered down for several days your communication lines are all broken down your radio doesn't work anymore Things are just not working, and you can't see what's going on in the larger picture. From your perspective, it's essentially over. You've lost. You're taking fire. You can't communicate. Things look bleak. You're convinced that victory is absolutely impossible. I mean, how could it when the humanists have taken over everything? You nearly give up. You take fire from, for hours upon hours from the enemy. You don't know what the general knows, at least not entirely. But imagine if somehow you received word. How would you feel about the mission if you received word from your commanding officers that the war is over, just hang tight and finish this last mission? How would you feel? See, friends, this is the story about the church. It's a story about the church. Christ is our commander-in-chief who has absolutely won the battle. Satan has been dethroned. Evil has been beaten. And there's just a few short missions left for the church. And yet most Christians don't believe that victory is possible. 
It's as if we don't have a king who's been established on Zion. It's as if we don't have an empty tomb to declare. It's as if we're moping around this earth looking like a bunch of defeated soldiers who has no clue, they have no clue on what to do next. See, the great Easter message, the great Resurrection Sunday proclamation is that the terms and conditions of surrender have been laid out and it's now our duty to declare it to the rest of the world. Listen, the resurrection rearranges your life. It rearranges your schedule, your purpose, your mission, your outlook, your plan for the future, and so on. The resurrection of Christ absolutely changes everything. We are not sitting here this morning looking back at a fun little event that happened many moons ago. No, we're looking back to see that our king has absolutely won the war. And we're not trying to get Jesus elected either. We're not political volunteers here going door to door asking for the delegate support. We announce that the world has been purchased by the blood of Christ and that all men, women, and children everywhere are summoned to come and be forgiven. We aren't declaring this in hopes that it'll eventually be true. We speak because it is true. We're not sitting around hoping that Psalm 2 will happen someday when Jesus comes back. Psalm 2, according to the New Testament, has happened, and some of it is still an ongoing operation. We're not hoping that Jesus will someday get authority over the earth. Jesus has authority over the earth today. The church is not a cute little, a cute little, little um, political constituency trying hard to get our candidate to win. We're not telling the world something that we're trying to, to do. We're telling the world that something has already been done. See, on the basis of Christ's bloodied cross, empty tomb, and subsequent enthronement, we go out into the world declaring and announcing to the nations that it is their duty to submit to this king. The city has been taken. The new king has been installed. The former rulers have been deposed. Resistance is futile. Deal with it. Which means Christianity is very much a public operation. The world wants Christianity to be relegated to a mere private affair between you and your closet. But if that's what they wanted, they should not have taken Jesus out into the public square for the world to see. The world watched the cross, and the world knows that a tomb sits empty. Also, the world can hear its message. See, church, we're not some volunteer organization where people are in and out all of the time doing whatever suits them. This is a monarchy. Christ is king, and the kingdom must advance. The tomb is empty. The Lord Jesus has been enthroned. He has dominion over the earth because he has bought it with the blood that he shed. And since he has all authority, his kingdom has advanced. It is advancing and will advance. And so we are now citizens of this conquering kingdom. This is the true Easter story. This is the true story of Resurrection Sunday. This is the risen King. Jesus is very much alive. May you trust him and follow him obediently today. Amen and amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set your king above all rulers and principalities, kings and presidents. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross to pay the restitution price that we owed for our sins. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing the truth of this gospel message to our ears. God, we exalt you this day, this Lord's day, for your unending grace and extravagant mercy. In the name of Christ our Lord, I pray, amen. He is risen.